from CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Often people say stupid things on wiretaps. I had a drug case where they talked in pig Latin, which wasn't too hard to break apart after the fact. Heroin was food, so there was a lot of description of Udifei all over the wire. That's Patrick Fitzgerald. He's a former federal prosecutor who led cases against corrupt government officials, terrorists, and organized crime bosses. Man after my own heart. He led the prosecution of Scooter Libby, and he's now representing Jim Comey. I talked to Pat about how prosecutors build a case, the art of flipping a witness, and deciphering wiretaps in Pig Latin. But first, let's get to your questions. Creek, this is Eva from Phoenix, and I love, love, love the show. I listen to it, and I feel so much smarter about things that I should have known, maybe. I don't know. But my question is, all of these pardons, kind of getting ridiculous. They make no sense, but I've been reading that they have something to do with him using them as a weapon. Is there a way to stop this? I mean, it just has no rhyme or reason. I think he would probably pardon, I don't know, Mickey Mouse if something happened. Well, Mickey would never get in trouble. But anyway, I love the show, and I'd like you to answer the question. Thanks. So thanks, Eva, for your question. I agree with you, although you never know what's in any human's or mouse's soul, that Mickey Mouse is unlikely to have been in jeopardy, with the federal authorities at least. I can't speak for the state. I have a lot of views about pardons for various reasons. Uh, The one thing is, off the bat, there's not a lot to be done about who the president decides to pardon. It is one of the broadest powers granted to the president of the United States, right in the Constitution itself, not even in an amendment. The case for pardons was made, I reread this this weekend, by Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 74. It's an incredibly broad power, which has very little limitation other than The president can't give a pardon with respect to impeachment, and he can't pardon state crimes. Now, the one thing about broad powers, whether given to a CEO of a company or a United States attorney or a president, is that in order for people to have faith that the decisions are being made, not on a whim and not out of spite and based on merit, so that worthy petitioners are getting granted the pardon because it makes sense and because it's in pursuit of justice and in the interest of justice, you want to have a procedure and a policy for how it's done, and which is why many years ago there was established in the Justice Department the Office of the Pardon Attorney. And the way the procedure usually works is, again, the president has the right under the Constitution to override any recommendation made, but there's at least a process. So people can be advised of the merits and the pros and the cons. And the way it usually works, and we got a lot of these petitions that came through our office as well, when somebody thinks they're worthy of a pardon, they make a petition to the pardon attorney's office. The pardon attorney who has experience Uh, over time and institutional knowledge and a sense of who all the other people are out there who have been pardoned and who haven't been pardoned. They make an assessment after consideration of various issues, including going back and questioning the underlying prosecutors, often the judge who oversaw the case, the defense lawyer. They look at the records. They look to see if the law has changed and if there's a reason why a particular pardon is worthy. And then they make a recommendation to the White House and a president can decide to do it or not. Now, there have been lots of bad pardons issued, in my view. One was by President Clinton at the end of his time as president with respect to Mark Rich. In fact, that pardon so outraged my predecessor, Mary Jo White, who hired me as an AUSA, that she launched a bribery investigation because Mark Rich and his wife were donors to the Democratic Party. So there have been occasions when other presidents, I believe, have abused their pardon power. The pardon power has been controversial for some time. What I think is different about how Donald Trump has used the pardon power is 
with respect to every single one of the pardons he's issued so far, only five, a majority of them are sort of conservative icons whose pardons probably please some part of his base. And second, they appear to have been done with no review whatsoever. And at least in the case of Joe Arpaio, without even finality in the case, among the things that the pardon attorney and the general pardon guidelines that are printed and you can see them, they're available online, the guidelines provide that you can't get a pardon for at least five years after conviction or serving your sentence, that you have shown remorse and a variety of other standards as well. But an intriguing question has been raised in the last week because the president himself tweeted out the following, I have the absolute power to pardon myself. And then he went on to say that, you know, why would he do that? Because he's done nothing wrong. That's debatable. But on the issue of whether or not he has the absolute power to pardon himself, that's undeniably incorrect. There is some debate. I don't think it's a good debate. And I think the weight of authority is on the side that the president cannot pardon himself. But no one says, even though the president suggests there are a lot of scholars saying this, they're not. I haven't heard one person say that the Constitution is absolutely clear that he can pardon himself. Some people have said that the Constitution is unclear on it, and it may be that he can pardon himself because the Constitution does not say he can't pardon himself. But common sense, rule of law, and fidelity to justice tell you that it should be an impossibility for a president to pardon himself. This came up once before in 1974. Richard Nixon looked to be thinking about pardoning himself with the swirl of Watergate all around him. And he went to the Office of Legal Counsel, which is sort of the, you know, the conscience of the Justice Department, lawyers for the United States of America. And the question was posed, can a president pardon himself? And the Office of Legal Counsel didn't spend a lot of time analyzing it because it seemed to think it was a pretty easy question and essentially said in a very short opinion, and I'm paraphrasing here, it would seem that a president cannot pardon himself based on the fundamental, eternal, longstanding legal principle that no one can be a judge in his own case. And if you think about it for a moment, even for all of you who are not lawyers, that's how it should be. You can't be your own judge. You can't be your own jury. And I think that kind of settles it. The second thing about a president deciding to pardon himself is, and I said this last week, kind of tongue-in-cheek, that would be almost self-executing impeachment. Some people are not sure about how weak-willed Congress would be. It's my view, and I think should be the view of any right-thinking American, that if a president of the United States decides to assert his ability to pardon himself and pardons himself preemptively, or after some charge has been brought, he should be kicked out of office immediately. And anybody who votes against impeachment in that circumstance, I think doesn't belong as representative in American government and doesn't understand anything at all about what the rule of law means. And here's the other thing, based on the pattern of the president's pardoning so far, and again, he can pardon whoever he wants, choose not to pardon whoever he wants, but the pardon power, I don't think was intended only for use with people who are famous and who are high profile and have fancy lawyers to argue on their behalf. Most presidents over time have spent some amount of their power to bestow this grant, essentially, of forgiveness on people who are not well-known, whose cases did not make the headlines, and who yet suffered some injustice. Hey, Preet. My name is Evan Berger. I'm from Sharon, Massachusetts. Really enjoyed the podcast. So here's my question, and it's the day after the Dinesh D'Souza pardon. Obviously, you're very closely tied to it. I'd certainly like your your take on this whole situation. Thanks a lot, Pre. Keep it going. Look forward to the next episode. Evan, thanks for your question. There have been a lot of questions about the most recent pardon by the president with respect to Dinesh D'Souza. Yeah, my office was involved in the case. We're the office that brought the prosecution against him. As I've said multiple times over the past week, 
it was not the crime of the century, but the serious election fraud crime. He essentially evaded the campaign finance limits on contributions by funneling money through straw donors who he then repaid to promote the candidacy of a particular person running for the United States Senate in New York. And it's a case that was brought by career prosecutors, career FBI agents through a routine search of election records and finance records. We have brought similar cases against Democrats, in fact, more Democrats than Republicans, more liberals than conservatives in New York. And if you look at the facts, you look at the law, there's absolutely nothing controversial about it at all. In fact, Mr. D'Souza pled guilty fairly quickly. He accepted responsibility for his crime. He said in open court that he deeply regretted his illegal act. His lawyer, you'll recognize, Ben Brathman, who was a recent guest on the show, in fact, just last week, uh, who's no slouch, literally said in court in front of Judge Berman that they had no legal defense to the allegation. And so they pled guilty. And there was some allegation that D'Souza made because he is an ardent critic of Barack Obama, although not many people have heard of him, and I don't think Barack Obama was screening his movies in the White House, he has made the allegation that he was selectively prosecuted. That's not true, and the proof that it's not true lies in the proceedings in the district court, where the allegation was made and it was refuted, and I actually reread the briefs this past weekend, and there are cases, there's case after case after case where people who were similarly situated to Mr. D'Souza were prosecuted in our district and in other districts, and he can say what he wants about being treated unfairly, but it's a case we brought. We had hundreds of more important cases to think about and to prosecute, and Donald Trump absolutely has the right to pardon anyone who he wants to pardon in the ordinary course, although this is sometimes violated, and every time it's violated, I think it's a bad idea. The prosecutor's office who brought the case gets consulted on their view of whether or not the person should be pardoned. I got those requests all the time when I was the United States Attorney, and sometimes, in fact, you should be aware, we didn't object or we supported it because the law had changed over the course of years, and we looked back at a case that had been brought you know, many years earlier, and we thought a pardon was justified because someone had turned around their life or had good cause and merit to get a pardon. And sometimes we objected. And this is one where if I'd been asked, I would have objected. And I presume the Southern District of New York and its new leadership would have objected. And the other issue it raises that people have mentioned is whether or not the president is sending some signal. And like, I can't predict what's in someone's mind. And I don't know if he's sending a signal or not, or he's just pardoning people out of spite and on a whim and for political purposes, because the same day that he issued this pardon, he toyed with publicly the idea of pardoning Martha Stewart, who was prosecuted by Jim Comey as U.S. attorney, and also Rod Blagojevich, who was prosecuted by Jim Comey's best friend and lawyer, Pat Fitzgerald, today's guest. And it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to why he's considering particular pardons other than politics. And so that's point one. Point two is it does seem that the people who are in jeopardy in connection with the Mueller investigation may themselves be getting the message, whether it's intended or not, that, you know, looky here, I get the chance to be pardoned and maybe I can be free and clear. Roger Stone, who is believed to be a subject or a target of the investigation, has himself said that he's getting the message that Donald Trump will pardon people. I happen to think, and I don't know, but I'm guessing, that Donald Trump is excited to wield his pardon power in any way he sees fit. It's one of the few areas where he literally has no curb on it at all. No Congress can change his ability to pardon. No court can really do anything about it unless there's an explicit crime in connection with the pardon, which is arguable depending on the circumstances. But generally speaking, Donald Trump can do whatever he wants, pardon anybody who wants for any reason at all. And he seems to like that power. And I think if he needed to, he would be prepared to pardon every single person 
before or after charges brought by Bob Mueller. That's my worry. Lots of people think that you can only pardon someone after they've been charged or convicted. And what people forget is the most famous pardon in modern times was the one bestowed by President Gerald Ford on former President Richard Nixon, who left office in disgrace. And remember, Richard Nixon was never charged with a crime. He was never indicted by anyone. And the Ford pardon of Richard Nixon was preemptive. And he, in advance of any charges being brought or any grand jury you know, issuing a charge, granted Richard Nixon a full pardon for any and all federal crimes he may have committed while in office as president. So that was broad, far-reaching, and before any accusation had been made. So the president does have that power. He does not have to wait for Michael Cohen to be charged. He doesn't have to wait for Jared Kushner or anyone else to be charged to pardon someone. It's political death, I think, and I hope, but the law doesn't require a charge before a pardon is issued. And let me say one last thing about this issue. When it comes to this president, I would much rather be fired by him than need to be pardoned by him. This next question comes by tweet from Christopher T. Wood. The question is, for your podcast, what is the practical effect on Manafort if the judge finds the claim of witness tampering is credible? Thanks, Christopher. Lots of people have been asking what the impact of this is. By way of background, you may have seen that the special counsel's office lodged some pretty serious allegations against Paul Manafort in the ongoing case in the District of Columbia. They have alleged that Paul Manafort, after he was charged and under home confinement and with very strict conditions of bail that he was barely granted, was going out and communicating electronically, sometimes using encrypted apps, with two potential witnesses in his case, and essentially alleging that he was trying to tamper with them to put words in their mouth with respect to what the underlying charges are. Remember, one of the underlying charges was whether or not Paul Manafort had properly registered as a foreign agent in order to lobby for foreign interests. And so in the text messages that they got through subpoena or some other means, they have alleged that he has been trying to tell these other two witnesses, at least two witnesses, remind them that the business that they did and the lobbying they did only occurred in Europe. That would have the effect of helping his own criminal case. And it's not what the facts show. The facts, as alleged by the special counsel, are that he engaged in this lobbying activity in the United States as well. That's a no-no. Tampering with witnesses is a big deal. And I think if all of this is true and the judge believes the allegations made, it's a huge amount of trouble for Paul Manafort in at least three ways. First, as you mentioned, it could result in the revocation of his bail. So there's going to be a hearing about this on June 15th, a few days away, where the parties will argue about whether or not the outreach to these witnesses was innocent or not innocent based on the papers that I saw and the citations that I saw. It does not seem innocent. So I think there's a really decent chance that the judge decides to put Paul Manafort in jail pending his trial. One effect that may have, based on my experience, is sometimes it's the thing that causes someone to decide to flip because no one likes to be in jail. And often if you decide to cooperate and you can prove yourself to be trustworthy and credible, prosecutors will be kinder about your pretrial release, even after you've engaged in conduct like this. So he could lose bail. The second thing is he could have additional charges brought against him. There's a statute, which is referred to throughout the government's motion, called 18 U.S.C. 1512. It's a form of obstruction. It's basically a crime to tamper with witnesses, and that will increase his exposure and his potential jail time. So he loses bail. He might have additional charges. And then third, equally serious, all this evidence about his witness tampering will probably come in as evidence in the underlying crime. 
and it shows consciousness of guilt, and it shows he was trying to hide something, and he was trying to get away with something. So to the extent that the case against Paul Manafort on the underlying charges was already strong, they're buttressed and made more strong by this other evidence of witness tampering. And then the final thing I'll say is, so I guess it's four points. When it comes to sentencing of the, of the defendant, judges don't like this kind of obstruction. They hate it, and it causes them to form a view of the defendant that is not kind. And that's likely to cause him to suffer both at trial because representations made by lawyers may not be believed. It's going to cause the judge to worry all the time that this man is doing something to undermine the case. It's going to cause this judge to think that this person needs to learn his lesson and may be punished more harshly than he otherwise would have been. So in every way, shape, or form, tampering with witnesses in the way the prosecutors will find out in detail and report to the judge is a disaster, and it was stupid. My guest this week is Patrick Fitzgerald. He's the former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois and led the case against Governor Rod Blagojevich, among so many others. He's also an alum of my old office, the Southern District of New York, where as an AUSA, he prosecuted all kinds of cases, including mob cases and terrorism prosecutions against members of al-Qaeda. Pat is now in private practice, representing, among other people, Jim Comey. This is the second episode in our series on how the criminal justice system works. Last week, you'll remember I talked with defense attorney Ben Brathman. Today, I speak with Pat about what makes a good prosecutor, how he prepares a witness, and the emotion of his first guilty verdict. Patrick Fitzgerald, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. So, you know, we used to work together once when I was a young prosecutor and you were still in the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. You were the chief of the organized crime unit. And then later... We were both U.S. attorneys in separate districts, you in the Northern District of Illinois, which contains Chicago. And of course, I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District. So it's, it's great to sort of work with you again, although through a podcast. So thanks again. Not at all. Happy to do it. So why don't we start at the beginning of you know the, the illustrious career that you have had. You became a prosecutor. How come? I don't think I set out to be a prosecutor. And I, I went to law school and I frankly had some questions toward the end of law school about whether I wanted to be a lawyer. And I interned in my third year of law school at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston and had a wonderful time. I literally bumped into a 65-year-old mobster coming out of the courtroom and I ran in with some legal research and nearly knocked him over. And the assistant U.S. Attorney said, do you you realize who you just ran into? And I said, no. And uh, I watched some IRA gun running trials and some drug trials and some motorcycle gang trials and thought, what a great job. And then I sort of dawned on me eventually that it was not just a great job to think about, but maybe um, I could do it myself. And I worked in the private sector for two years and then applied to the office. And to my surprise, they hired me. I'm pretty sure the guy you ran into at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston was not Whitey Bulger. Uh, it was not. Uh, I think he was <laughs> elsewhere for a while. <laughs> but I like the fact that you almost knocked him over instead of vice versa. What do you think makes a good prosecutor? That's a great question. I remember when I was interviewing people, and when you're a U.S. attorney, I think I hired about 150 prosecutors. And people tell you when, when you become a U.S. attorney that you'll always remember who you hired more than any case, and that turns out to be true. And you think about the pride people have, like, oh, yes, I hired him, I hired her. It really you know, does make you proud. And what I really wanted to see was someone I thought who could do the job, but by the time they came to me for an interview, all the academics and writing ability have been scrubbed. 
and you really wanted to have someone that you thought um, you feel comfortable basically making serious judgments about people's lives. And that's, that's a hard test. But uh, I remember one prosecutor, Z. Scott, came to me and sort of said, you know, well, that person was terrific, but I didn't sense any soul. And they always stuck with me. And it's sort of like, okay, you can be off the charts smart. You can be articulate. But at the end of the day, people can make lots of decisions. And you want to feel comfortable that they'll be aggressive enough fighting crime, but fair and have judgment and have the judgment to raise their hand when they think they're facing a difficult issue to seek advice. So judgment and a sense of proportionality. Let's talk about criminal prosecution. This is sort of one episode in a four-part series that looks at criminal justice in the federal system from different angles, from the defense angle, from the defendant's perspective, from the prosecutor's perspective. And obviously, you've been in private practice for some time, but you spend most of your career as an assistant U.S. attorney and as a United States attorney. So you've seen it all. And so when a, you know, a case begins with an investigation. You don't have a case unless you figure out what the facts are. And I think a lot of people presume that it's the law enforcement agent, the FBI agent, or the Secret Service agent, or the police officer who does the investigating, and then the prosecutor just sort of takes it over, like they show in Law and & Order, and takes it to court after the investigation is wrapped up and tied in a bow. You and I know that that's not true in the offices where we work. Explain what the role of the prosecutor is in an investigation. Sure. There are a bunch of cases where appropriately the agents will develop it on their own, you know. A bank robbery is uh, underway and a SWAT team comes in and arrests the bank robbers and catches them in the act. You know, a lot of your investigating is done and the case is sort of handed over to work with the agents going forward. But the best cases and the most sophisticated cases are ones that are a partnership between the agents and the prosecutors. And I always worried if an agent thought we investigate and you prosecute, that's not going to be a good case. And if a prosecutor thought that the agents worked for them, that's not going to be a good case. And the best cases were where you teamed up with the agents who told you what was going on and the prosecutors weighing in on investigative techniques and steps. And sometimes that was surprising to even to agents. An example that sticks in my mind, we were going after some bad guys back in the early 90s and they were uh, up to bad stuff. And one of them offered to sell an undercover a bazooka and a bunch of hand grenades. <laughs> uh -huh. And so they were quite excited that they had a bad guy and wanted to get the bazooka and the hand grenades off the street as soon as possible. And then I happened to look up what the penalties were for possessing a bazooka and hand grenades and realized that the, they had also offered to sell drugs. And I told the agents to their surprise, make sure you buy the dope. The penalties for drugs are a lot more remarkably than for possessing a bazooka and hand grenades. So get both. It's counterintuitive. An agent would say, let's get the bazooka and hand grenades. And that's a serious charge. Instead, you wanted to get the kilos of heroin they're selling and the bazooka and hand grenades and take them off the street. But the penalties were a lot harder. So there are those odd things that come up where the agents, I think, would not be expected to anticipate that. And then once you shift into more of the prosecution mode, any good team is going to have the agents involved through to the very end, dealing with witnesses and offering insights. So I think the cases where the agents and prosecutors are almost bleeding over into each other's roles are the ones that achieve success. Right. And at trial, for the people who go to trial, the prosecutors sit at the table as the assistant U.S. attorneys, along with a case agent, whether from the FBI or the Secret Service or the IRS or the DEA or anyone else. And it's part of, you know, a tight-knit team at the table. Yeah. And they're a tremendous resource. They're often key relationships with witnesses. And many of them have facts just stuffed inside their head that you're sitting there at trial and saying, that surprised me. And you turn to the agent and they've got it all squared away and can, can deal with it. So they're not furniture. Right. And also along the way, 
before there might be an arrest in a case, obviously there's some things that agents do not have the authority to do. They can go out and they can do surveillance. They can knock on doors. They can go through trash. They can uh, do all sorts of things, but they can't, for example, engage in a search without a warrant. And for a warrant, you need a lawyer. You can't tap a phone without a court order. And for that, you need the lawyer. So there's, there's also lots of legal reasons why prosecutors have to be bound up with the agents even before the charge is brought. Agreed. And the resources that if there was a wiretap, the amount of resources spent by agents to man that wiretap are massive. And so having buy-in where the agents know that the prosecutors will go get them the legal process they need and the prosecutors know they'll put in the, the hard work in return, that partnership is really something that was key to the, the bigger cases. Were wiretaps your favorite kind of evidence? Hard to beat wiretap evidence or undercover recordings because it then becomes whether they meant what they said, but you know what they say, and there's not a witness standing there saying one thing and, and somebody else saying another, and the jury's trying to find out what was said. You have a wiretap, and particularly if you can corroborate what it all means, uh, that's great. And often people say stupid, very stupid things in wiretaps from I had a drug case where they talked in pig Latin, which wasn't too hard to uh, <laughs> break apart after the fact. Uh, Who were those? were those? Was that in New York or in Chicago? That was in New York. It was the Boy George drug ring. Heroin was food. So there was a, a lot of description of Udi Fe <laughs> uh, all over the wire. And Trooper Claire Mulcahy took the stand as a pig Latin expert and decoded the wire for the jury and was cross-examined and answered in pig Latin at times. <laughs> it's the famous case of... Um, you know, when I was growing up doing narcotics cases in New York, and some of the Colombian drug dealers would, instead of using kilo to refer to a kilo of cocaine, would use dresses, and they would order, you know, 25 and a half dresses. Yeah. Which shirt, the white one or the brown one? Right, right, right. I'll take one and a half. Were there cases that you thought would not have been possible to make without the wiretap? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's certain cases where sometimes your informant may have all sorts of issues. And even though you may trust the informant, you couldn't make the case. And one of those cases probably was the, the blind shake case where there was an intelligence wiretap that was later used as uh, criminal evidence. And there were court body recordings made by an informant. And, you know, to have him come in to a room with a blind shake and have him come out and say, he asked me to attack the American military. That's asking an awful lot from a jury to believe an uncorroborated account. Having it on tape is a, a world different. Were the most fun wiretaps those between mobsters? Yes, they were very hard to figure out because it would always be, you know, that guy about the thing. And then I took the <laughs> thing and I told him and then the other guy, oh yeah. And you would go round and round and round and try to figure out what it meant. And those guys never used Pig Latin. Uh, never used Pig Latin. Yeah. Uh, they didn't use English. Uh, they spoke their own <laughs> language. But oftentimes when you finally got decoded what they were saying, and you could figure it out, it was pretty pretty damning. Right. Well, the smartest mobsters were very careful on the phone. And then famously, there were those, you know, in your time and also still mine, who would, if they wanted to conduct business that would implicate themselves, they walked around the block. And did a walk talk. They did a walk and talk, right? Or also famously, you know, to make sure that people weren't wearing body wires, you know, you'd get in the tub, no clothes. Yes, there was a, a number of those. People also talked before they hung up the phone and didn't realize it was live. So we had a couple of those where people broke code and said, I just did X. And uh, then they hung up the phone. So it wasn't too bright. Yes, because they presumed that the wiretap begins once the call is connected. Right. 
they finished the call and then they just say, I just order drugs. And I was like, okay, well, that was helpful. Now, you just gave a practice tip to criminals who were listening to this show. I think the number of narcotics traffickers on the Preparer podcast <laughs> may increase. They might learn some things. So the other way you get evidence in a case is by you know, making a deal with somebody who is part of the criminal conspiracy. You know, one of the partners in crime, and you flip them. And flipping is something that people have been talking about a lot because of, you know, more famous investigations that are going on that we don't have to talk about. But describe this process of flipping and how prosecutors think about it. How badly do you want someone to flip in a particular case? And how do you go about getting that done? Like, what are the incentives? Sure. It, look, some cases you have a rock-solid case based upon wiretaps or other concrete evidence, and you don't really need a flipper. But those are rare. And I always thought that having an inside view, telling you what happened, and painting the complete picture, and then having it corroborated by saying, okay, now you told us that you and the defendant did X on this date. Now let me play a tape for you and walk us through the tape. That makes jurors feel a lot more comfortable that what they're getting is the truth. How much do you worry about jurors also recoiling from this idea that the government has gotten in bed with this criminal? And depending on the nature of the crime, you know, somebody who, who may have dealt drugs or may have beaten people or may have lied before. You know, did you think about that at the time? Oh, you do. And I think the jurors often are offended by it. I think the logical process is they hear the account and they look for the corroboration. And if what they're saying on the stand lines up with the other evidence, they'll be convinced. Logically, they will say, well, I was convinced by the evidence. I was offended by that witness. But at the end of the day, you thought if you didn't have the witness laid out in sort of detail, they may not have believed it. You know, the few times you talk to jurors afterward, they may make comments like they really didn't trust that witness, but boy, did they believe the tapes. And yet I think it was the witness and the tapes. So when you're deciding who to sign up as a cooperating witness, you know, who to flip, is it always the case that you want to flip upward in the food chain? You want to flip upward in the food chain because you'd rather give a break to a person lower down, less culpable and hold a more culpable person uh, accountable. Unfortunately, you may get stuck at times, either because the people lower down the food chain won't flip, or because the person higher up the food chain may have a much broader span of knowledge that you end up having a higher ranking person. And so they may give you people above them, but you may be stuck at a trial where they're testifying down, which is much more uncomfortable. Yeah, did you ever have that? And was it a problem? Yes, and it's something you were very conscious of. And you try to make sure the jury understands all the reasons why you signed that person up and make it clear to them that they were being signed up not just to testify down, but to testify across and up. And to your earlier question about flipping people, I think a huge part of that depends on personality, both the agent and the prosecutor. Many of the agents may be the ones to flip someone. And often just by being decent human beings, there was a Great agent I work with, Jack Campanella. Oh, yeah. He was a smart, hardworking, really good guy. And he didn't um, demean people he arrested and you know act like Kojak. And he didn't suck up to them and make them feel like they're special because they were so good at crime. He just dealt with them as a one-to-one -one basis. And part of what happens when people become government witnesses, they have to reconcile to themselves. Are they, are they betraying friends? Are they betraying some other loyalty? And it's hard enough for people like that to think about it. And if they think, well, that person treats me with decency and respect, I can talk to them. So I think a big part of the flipping process is just coming at it where people are respectful. 
So take us through it. So sometimes it's the agent, sometimes it's the prosecutor, sometimes it's both of you together. And guy's been arrested and you bring him in and you're trying to make the pitch, hopefully before he's presented in court so he can do some proactive cooperation, maybe wear a wire or something else. And you go in the room. Did you have, you know, a particular technique or a speech that you gave? It was very fact specific. It would depend on what rapport there already was with the witness, either from an agent who is then going to build you up and sort of say, look, we've been talking and we think we might be able to work together and they may have a lawyer with them or not. And here's the guy that's going to be responsible or here's the guy that uh, the U.S. attorney is going to turn to and, you know, I vouch for him and I trust him and let's work together. Then you have to sort of grab that baton a bit and try to build a rapport with a witness. Why don't you yell at them and scare the bejesus out of them and say, Listen, because that's what you see in the movies, right? Right. You know, this is your last chance. You're going to go to jail forever. You're never going to see your kids. F you, et cetera. And you scare them into turning into a, a witness for the government. I would be uncomfortable with that. I think it's entirely counterproductive. I think the best pitches to them are in a matter-of-fact tone. And depending on what the case is, there are times when people would come in and you tell them, you know, the first time you didn't want to talk. So I just asked you to come here to listen. And let me tell you how it is that we're going to prove up that, you know, you're part of this drug conspiracy. And why don't I pick one tape here? And I just want to set the scene. And a jury's going to hear this one day. And what we're going to say is that this is you ordering two and a half kilos when you ask for two and a half shirts for, you know, $45,000. <laughs> or in Pig Latin. Uh, and yeah, or Pig Latin. And let me just play the tape and let's talk about it. And then you talk to them about their circumstances and they're facing serious charges and what the penalties are. And then I would basically tell them, I'm not here to judge whether you want to be a witness or not. There's lots of reasons why you might not want to be. And that's fine. And no one's going to force you to be a witness. But here are the upsides. And maybe we can reduce your prison time if you're truthful and cooperative. Let's address safety concerns. Let's talk about this. And, you know, this is your choice going forward. And think about all the things that are on your mind. And if you have a family, think about what it means in terms of you're getting out sooner rather than later and spending your time with them. I never, never thought of this as any sort of conversion, like to have to see the light and profess to suddenly have a religious conversion and see the error of their ways. It's basically straightforward. Like, you know, if you're willing to talk and be truthful, we'll go to bat for you. And matter of fact, never screaming. But one of the first things you have to show them is the likelihood that they'll be convicted. So you play the tape, you tell them the evidence, and then you're hoping that they're doing a sort of cost-benefit analysis and they realize, okay, well, I'm, I'm done. My goose is cooked, so I better flip. What do you do with the people who are really intractable? You just give up and you walk away from them and just cross your fingers, or are there further plays? I think the ones who are intractable, if they're so intractable, if you think they're important, you sometimes bring their lawyers in and you pitch their lawyers and sort of say, hey, I recognize you may be new to your client and the client may be uncomfortable if you're pushing him to cooperate and you don't want to push him or her, but let's just talk straight out and here's how we see our case. And we think, you know, your client could be very useful and there'd be value in that. Why don't you go talk to them? And if it's worth pursuing, come back to us. Sometimes the lawyers will say, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's just never going to happen. And then you give up or at least give up for now. And sometimes they say, look, I want to test this. I want to bring some motions or I want to look through the evidence you have. And if I satisfy myself that my client's in a pickle, I'll go work with them. Sometimes you use the benefit of the clock against them, right? So 10 people get arrested in a gang and you don't need, you know, multiple people to cooperate. 
and flip, yep. and presumably everyone has similar information about the others because they're all in the same gang together, there's a little bit of pressure, right, to come in quick. Yep. First one on the bus gets the best deal, and that's something you can make clear to them or their counsel and tell them, I'd rather, you know, if they're the low person on the totem pole, I'd much rather work with you and give you a break than necessarily somebody else. But, you know, the train leaves the station at a certain point, and we've got to move on. And so you lay that in front of them for sure. Is that fair, you think, overall, that by accident of who has a lawyer who decides to bring his client in more quickly, they're more likely to get lenience because they get signed up first? Is it fair in the outcome? Uh, probably not. But, it's you know, the prosecutor can't tell a defense attorney what to do. And everyone knows if you're a prosecutor, there are people who come in who have a high proclivity to say, yep, you got my guy, let's cut a deal. And then there are some people who would proclaim, I'll never cut a deal which always made me feel uncomfortable. Like, you know, that's an option for the client to decide. Does that seem wrong to you? It seems very questionable to me because, you know, you, ought to, you shouldn't be pushing your client to cooperate or not cooperate. You should put the facts in front of them and the incentives and the risks and have them decide. And so, yeah, people do benefit according to the decisions that are collectively made that may vary with who represents them. Let's talk about the one case that everyone knows in America. That's Miranda. So everyone knows that when you get arrested, you're supposed to be read your rights. Is that always true? Do people get read their rights right away? And does that shut people up in, for example, terrorism cases, which is what the politicians always say? What's been your experience with Miranda? Sure. If you ask me when I first started, I would say Miranda is always a scary moment when you're in an interview. You read the person their rights and you might look at it and say, well, there are only two outcomes. If they were going to talk anyway, maybe they don't now. And so from a prosecutor's perspective, you see the loss of information because of Miranda. However, having it seen play out in practice, I have come to a very different view. And I think Miranda is misunderstood. And given that there are some exceptions that are not clearly defined when you can have questioning without Miranda, I think there's a great, great risk in not reading Miranda, not just to civil liberties, but to safety. And the example I'll give involved a guy named David Headley. And Headley was arrested in October of 2009, and we arrested him in Chicago on suspicion that he was planning to carry out an attack, a terrorist attack on a Danish newspaper. And after being Mirandized, and I think within about 20 minutes of being interviewed, he confessed to playing a significant role in the terrorist attacks in 2008 in Mumbai in India, where more than 160 people were killed, and then proceeded to give information for days and days afterward. And when he got a lawyer and went to court. He was facing the potential death penalty. And any lawyer worth his or her salt would say to themselves, he just confessed to something they weren't investigating him for. And this is serious business. And so let's shut down the cooperation. And let's see if we can suppress this statement. And if he hadn't been Mirandized, that might have happened. And he might have walked free. And he certainly wouldn't have cooperated. But instead, he was Mirandized. And importantly, it was also videotaped. So the jurors could see not just that he was Mirandized, but he clearly understood what his rights were, almost to a comical point of arguing every time his rights came up. You know, stop telling me my rights. I fully understand it. I know this is being videotaped in a way that his lawyer could look at it and say, I'm not going to get away with a motion that's going to succeed, so I'm going to cooperate. And so what I always took away from that lesson was that happened in October 2009, and the underwear bomber came in two and a half months later. And there's a great public debate about people saying, see, if they didn't read Miranda, and I thought to myself, if he had come and been arrested two months later, 
and we hadn't read Miranda, we could have had a huge disaster on our hands where we would let someone walk free of a crime they committed and we would have lost the benefit of the intelligence of information he was providing. So I think that Miranda presents risks on both sides, but I think it's not fully appreciated how, how complicated it is. Yeah, and then five months or four months after the underwear bomber was Faisal Shahzad, the Times Square bomber in my own district. He was also Mirandized and talked for days about his training and about the people who he knew and all sorts of things that not only incriminated himself, but also led to a great amount of intelligence gathering as well. So you think the politicians are full of it when they say Mirandizing suspected terrorists is stupid? I think, look, it comes from a place where, from common sense, it makes it sound like Miranda poses these great risks. And that's a place I came from before I lived through it. And I dealt with a lot of terrorists and a lot of Mirandized, and a remarkable number of them waved Miranda rights and talked. Right. Why is that? Why do you think that is? This will sound bizarre. Yeah. I almost think that when you talk to an Al-Qaeda terrorist and they read in their rights, they realize they're in a system where they're not going to be tortured or beaten. And whatever they think about other foreign countries where they're being arrested or what they think the U.S. would do. And so there's almost a calming effect, like, hey, we're in a system where we're going to read you your rights. You don't have to tell us anything. You don't have to admit anything. You can get a lawyer. And so that's part of it. Part of it is I think a lot of the Al-Qaeda folks think they can talk their way around things. They almost practice like a military drill of, you know, I'll give them a little bit here and a little bit there and withhold it over time. And they can think they can be very convincing. So they'll engage in a dialogue and a debate with you, fully aware of their rights and having waived and it's sometimes trying to um, convert you to their way of thinking. But it's interesting because in part you would think, knowing that they're in a system, at least a civilian system, where they won't be tortured or subject to abuse, that they could get away with keeping their mouth shut. And they don't need to talk to avoid being abused. Some people have told me that you know, their view is if you're somebody who's committing a crime for ideological reasons and you've you know, committed to jihad against America, that you kind of want your story to be known that you're not doing it for anonymity. And once the jig is up and you've been arrested and you've been asked about things, you go a little bit into bragging mode. Does that sound right to you? I, I've seen that. There was a fellow we interviewed in um, Nairobi, Kenya, after the August 1998 embassy bombings. And he wanted, as a condition of talking to us, after we read him his Miranda rights, to be promised that he would be brought to America to stand trial so he could tell America why he did it. And we spent time negotiating about whether, in fact, I could promise him he would be tried in America. And I had to tell him I couldn't guarantee it, but I really wanted to see that happen. And he took that representation and then began to talk and wanted to tell the whole story and wanted to tell us why he was fighting America and wanted to sing a song to me at the end of his confession. <laughs> what song? It was a ode to the suicide bomber who was next to him in the truck and got killed. And it was a, um, a song to this guy, Azam, you know, something about living in paradise. It didn't stick with me, but that's what he wanted to do. I saw it elsewhere where there was lying going on, but I think a sincere belief that he could get away with doing it. And, you know, that included a fellow who went in the grand jury, uh, Bin Laden's personal secretary in 1997, and this is now public, so I can talk about it and talked for a day and lied like a rug. And then we went back in 98 and told him, we now found documents that show that we think you were lying last year and gave him target warnings and read him all his rights and he insisted on going ahead and talking. So part of it was a belief that they could um, blow past you. Part of it was bragging, but it's completely the opposite of the mob. You know, stop a mobster in the street and say, do you have the time? 
and they take the fifth. They wouldn't tell you how to find the bus. And so culturally, the Al-Qaeda folks are talkers. What did you mean by a target warning? A target warning is when you tell someone there's a serious chance you'll be charged. So there's a thing called a subject warning, which means you're being investigated. But a target warning is a higher ratchet up. And it basically says, in layman's terms, you're a serious suspect. Let's talk about what happens in connection with the decision to make a charge. So the investigation is done. You have enough or you don't have enough. You know, you serve both as an assistant U.S. attorney, so on the line, and then also as the head of the office in Chicago, the United States attorney. How did you think about how much evidence you needed generally to go forward on a case? How did you think about that decision to go ahead and take the very, very substantial step that even if you don't succeed in proving guilt, you've really shattered someone's life when you bring the accusation? Sure. When I was an assistant U.S. attorney in New York, and particularly in the younger days, when you were dealing with a lot of drug cases, first, you always want to make sure you had it right, so you believed that the person was guilty. In the drug cases, it was often easier because you might catch the guy with a kilo, and he's got a lot of explaining to do. But you would want to look at the evidence. And you know, if you had a couple of witnesses who independently testified that they had drug transactions with someone, you'd want to look for something substantial that would corroborate that. Back then, if you had a law enforcement officer who dealt with them in an undercover capacity, you felt very comfortable that a jury would take the word of a law enforcement officer and find that compelling. That has changed. Culturally, there's a much more exposure to skepticism about confessions and police conduct and also the sort of CSI effect where people expect more forensics. When I got to Chicago when I was U.S. attorney and cases are when they're coming up for your review, Sometimes it was sort of whether or not a legal theory worked, like in the corruption cases, you know, what's honest services and having some really smart people scrub that and tell you, you know, this is, this is black and white, this is gray, but we think it's correct or not. And then factually wanting to be convinced that the person is guilty before you get to do, can we prove it? And then when it gets to the, can we prove it? You want to sort of, you know, hash it around and frankly, assess the personalities of the people in the room. Some people see failure everywhere. Some people see success everywhere. And, and if you had a group thinking about how's a jury going to look at it, I would weigh that. And then to be candid, it was hard in a terrorism case if you thought the person was guilty of something very, very serious and killed people. And maybe you had a lot of intelligence information that was classified you couldn't use that told you that's the guy that did it. When you're comfortable that they've done it and they've taken lives, then you're going to be more aggressive and say, as long as I can good faith think I can you know, convict this person, then if this person is dangerous, we have to be aggressive and go out and find enough evidence because we just can't let this person walk away. Is that like going after Capone for tax fraud? Well, no, it might be on the very trial itself. It might be mm -hmm. a serious charge, but it might be that you're thinking the chances are you know, not 99 to 1 you're going to win. It might be different. But in those cases too, if you couldn't bring the main charge, would you go after them for a lesser charge? Absolutely. So you're prepared to take more risk if the crime is more serious? I'd say so. If you were convinced as a prosecutor, if you're convinced that they did it, that's a very different question. Like, I'm not sure he did it. That's a very scary conversation. You, you, don't, you don't get more aggressive when you're not convinced. But if you're convinced, you still have to feel like you can convict someone, but you have to be willing to sort of say, this might be tough. Or maybe I have the witnesses. They're coming from a foreign country. And the foreign country has promised to produce them, but you don't have that feeling that they're guaranteed to show up. You have to take that risk. Right. I mean, what I think sometimes people don't appreciate is how it can be that a prosecutor 
could be 100% certain that someone committed a crime, but there might not be enough evidence to prove it anywhere approaching 100%. And as you pointed out, it could be because there's evidence that's not allowed to be put in. It could be that a witness died. It could be that some information is classified. How important is it for the prosecutor to feel 100% certainty, whether or not the likelihood of success approaches that? That's just at the core mission. You don't want to be part of a case where you come to learn that you know you got the wrong person and they're you know innocent of a crime. That is just a, a horrible circumstance. So that's the first question. Right. So you set the standard very high. Yeah. The second question has to be: Can you prove it? And what damages is you're done if it's a legal theory that if you're wrong might mess up the law? But when it came to the terrorism cases, it was: Are they guilty? And there were times when you saw classified intelligence that made it clear that they were guilty and it was made clear to you, you can never use this. And so now you're saying, okay, what do I do now? And some of those cases that turned out later, we were allowed to use that evidence and it was very powerful, but you had to make decisions because people are about to get on an airplane and leave the country. And you've got to say, do we have enough on what we have to bring this case? When it came to a decision to charge criminally a powerful person, you know, a political figure, an elected official, was the calculus different? Is there a different standard for people like that? And should there be? Because you've charged a lot over your career, both in New York and in Chicago, a lot of significant people. I don't remember all those conversations beforehand, but my guess would be that we had that discussion about what the standard would be in every one of those conversations where people, you know, you could hear someone saying, wait a minute, if you're going to shoot for a king, you have to shoot to kill. We can't charge an X and lose because that would be, you know, really, really bad. But it would be bad why? Reputationally, it would be bad for people's faith in the justice system. It would be bad for that person and the rest of their career, even though they didn't get convicted. I think all three. The latter part, I'm assuming for this conversation that we've already scrubbed it to sort of say, we believe the person is guilty. It might be different if we're confident in the facts, but then the law is a bit fuzzy. And then you have to think about, you know, if you in good faith think you can convict someone and you think they've committed a serious crime, then bringing the case to trial, I don't think is unfair. It's unfortunate if it's a loss, but that's the way the system works. It's very, very different. If you, you shouldn't be having this conversation if you aren't confident the person is guilty. But are there considerations of what it's going to look like and feel like? Oh, yeah. You know, and how much blowback you're going to get, how much of a bullhorn the person you accuse will have to attack you and attack the office. Does that come into play and, and should it? I think it's going to depend on the facts and the, and the law implicated in a given case. Yes, if you're thinking about bringing a case where you're convinced the person is guilty, but the jury might acquit, you have to factor that analysis in, but you also have to factor in why they might acquit. Is it a dispute on the facts or is there some sense that the jury doesn't think that you know it may be a violation of the law, but it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. You would talk through that. And there were times when people would say, look, we know the person's guilty. And what they did was you know, a serious offense. And it goes to either the core of good government or core of the justice system, depending what the offense is. And you end up coming to a conclusion that, you know, let's live to fight a different war, a different day, or no, this person should be prosecuted like everyone else. And we'll work hard and, and try to fairly achieve a conviction. And we can't shy away from that, and we can't fear loss. So now you've charged someone. The next phase is proving their guilt. And you know most people in the system, as, as folks know, end up pleading guilty. But you know some people go to trial. And you've tried a lot of big cases, and you've overseen even more significant trials in your time. 
How do you think overall about the trial? Do you think trial is theater? Do you think trial is really a crucible for truth? I think when you're the prosecution, you think of it much more as a crucible for truth, but there's a whole lot of theater to it on, on both sides. And there are facts that some people are just very talented at giving the facts life. And I think people, jurors, see narratives. And now that I'm representing folks on the private sector side, I'm always telling them that the counter narrative is also very, very powerful. So a jury hears a story. And when I say story, I don't mean a made up story, but they hear a narrative. And that takes their mind like, okay, this is what happened. And then uh, the hard part for folks then responding to that is to either come back with a counter narrative or to sow doubt in that narrative. And so a lot of it is theater. Right. So the prosecutors, when you're training them and when you were thinking about it, they're all about the facts and the facts are important. You say, you know, here's a piece of evidence. Here's a piece of evidence. Here's a piece of evidence. You put it all together and you have guilt. That's not an effective way to present because it's not a story. Right. The risk most prosecutors have is that they want to put on too many facts and get the facts sort of lost in a sea of facts as opposed to the salient facts. And I thought most defense counsel that I saw in the courtrooms were much better at seizing on saying, okay, there's 100 facts. Here are the five that matter. And so part of what you want to tell prosecutors is, you know, let the jurors know how you frame the narrative, put the key facts in front of them, and then brace yourself for the counterargument. Part of the other lesson I would tell people for trial is they had to find a personality in the courtroom that fit their personality. And there are some tremendous trial lawyers on both sides, but none of them are good if they're not sort of a reflection of themselves. And so they walk into a courtroom and they see a fantastic attorney and then they try to mimic that person. Right, but right. It comes across as, as fake. Because right, the most important thing, you know, I used to teach students and assistants in the office is, is you got to be yourself because jurors will spot that from a mile away. Yeah. And it's not just what comes out of your mouth, it's how you comport yourself. And if you start using your hands more than you normally do, people will realize that. Or if you walk more than you normally do, people will realize that and they'll think you're a fake. Yeah. I, I had a friend who was from the South and he was a complete Southern gentleman. And the way he would walk a witness to the stand and squirt them up and you know hand them a Kleenex and everything else, that was him. And it came across as very endearing in the courtroom. But when you're from Brooklyn um, and you try to do that shtick, <laughs> it, it don't fly. Right. Are you supposed to take up an attitude of any sort towards the defendant? I'll give you the the example of what I'm thinking about. So I was taught, and it may have been by you, because you were still in the office at the time, and I think you gave a lecture to the general crimes assistants, I think on opening statements, which I'm sure was perfect. And the question arises, you give the opening statement, you're describing the crime, and at some point you have to introduce the fact of the defendant, and you say the defendant's name. And I was taught, for various reasons, that you, you step away from the podium, and as you say the defendant's name, you point at the defendant in front of the jury. And I think the first senior person who said this to me as an article of faith, you do that to show, particularly in a violent case, that you're not afraid of the defendant. The defendant's just a person too. And you're sort of showing a little bit of um, prosecutorial power. I don't know why I still buy that after all this time. What do you make of this issue of how the prosecutor should treat the defendant in terms of attitude in the courtroom? I think like an interview, you don't want to be disrespecting them. You don't want to be chummy chummy with them. I do agree that I think most people would point and because there's a little bit of saying, look, I'm going to ask you to vote that this person committed a crime and people don't want to do that if they think you're sheepish about it yourself. 
And so the people will point and sort of say, this defendant drove a truck up to this building with a bomb in it, knowing full well what happened. There should be no mistake about what you're accusing them of. And in multi-defendant cases, I think people often try to sort of ascribe a role to people so people could find the narrative. You know, this is the gunman who went into the bank. This is the getaway driver who sat outside. This guy was nowhere near the bank. He's the one who cased the job because he used to work there as a security guard. But in a complicated case, they sort of want to know who's at the table. There's five of them. Is it appropriate for prosecutors to have emotion in court? I think it would be criticism of government lawyers often is that they're sort of robotic and they're a little bit staccato in their presentation because they think, you know, they're not supposed to be like the defense lawyer. They're supposed to be, you know, all about the facts and the facts alone. But is there a role for emotion and indignation at trial? Is that unfair? Is that right? I think there is, and I think it's fair. And the name that comes to my mind was a trial attorney still in the Chicago office who's phenomenal named Diane MacArthur. And she is just a strong lawyer, but a nice person. Quiet, soft-spoken, even-keeled, maybe tending to be sort of speak softer than average. And if you watch her in a trial, she has a complete command of the facts, a complete command of the courtroom, and speaks to be heard but not to yell. And she'll go through her opening, and she'll go through her witnesses that way. And when it comes to a closing, I think she modulates appropriately. And if there's something that's being contended that's outrageous, when she raises her voice... She doesn't have to slam a two-by-four on the table to be heard. It's like the, you know, the 90-pound weakling in the, in the old Bazooka Joe comic strip who gets up and stands up for himself. And it's not loud. It's not screaming. But boy, is it effective because of the contrast. And I think it depends on the case. You do need to bring emotion at the right time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So, Pat, you tried the case against a number of individuals who were charged with blowing up the American embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998. And the trial took place in, I think, 2001. Lots of people died. I went to the courtroom a couple of times as a junior prosecutor just to, to see how the adults did it. What was the role of emotion and tone in that trial for you? The role of emotion and tone came to me in the death penalty part of that trial. And the jury deadlocked on the death penalty, which the average person may not appreciate if the death penalty is going to be imposed, it has to be unanimous. If they don't agree unanimously, then the death penalty is not imposed. You don't retry the death penalty part of the trial. And in that trial, when you're putting up more than 200 victims, I remember that we took a small number of victims and had people walk through what happened. And maybe it was the widow who had to describe how she said goodbye to her husband that morning. And then, you know, learned that there was a bombing and then how she had to go to a morgue and walk around for days until finally she found the right place and how she would identify the body. And it's, it's chilling. And then another person might come up and you'd say, tell us about this person's life. And, you know, you know they love their grandchildren and give them a snapshot. I remember there was a point in the courtroom where it looked like the whole courtroom was in tears, including, you know, defense counsel, prosecutors, court security. And then at one point, we just sort of said, look, we're not going to go through every one of these victims, but all these people died. And you should at least take a few seconds to understand that each one was a human being. And you put up a picture and said, this was victim so-and-so. And click through all the photos. I don't know how many minutes it took, but it was about as flooring an experience as you could do. None of it was screaming, but it was just a, a sobering 
reflection on how many people were killed. I think um, other people might have done it differently, but there had to be that emotional element to put in front of the jury, and the jury then had to decide what they thought the appropriate punishment was, and I respected their outcome. And in that case, the outcome was what? A deadlock, so there was no death penalty imposed. The other aspect of trial is getting your witnesses in shape. And so on the one hand, every time a government witness testifies, the defense lawyer goes at the witness saying, you know, you spend hours and hours with the prosecutor, and the prosecutor obviously has a right to prep the witness, but shouldn't be coaching the witness or having the witness rehearse answers or putting words in the mouth of the witness. How do you make sure that people don't cross the line from prep into coaching? That's a great question. In your own cases, I think you know it when you see it. And so if you were to take a witness in some white collar case and they have a whole bunch of emails laying out a chain of communications and it was four years ago and you bring them into the courtroom and sort of say, hey, we haven't met because I didn't want to coach you. So why don't you tell the jury what happened? And they start looking through 500 emails. You know, the judge would rightly take your head off. You want people to be prepared. That's very different than coaching. And I would tell witnesses often, look, I don't want the right answer. I want what you remember. If you have a picture that makes it very clear that the guy who robbed the bank ran out of the bank wearing a bright green hat, and your witness is telling you that the guy who robbed the bank went out wearing a bright blue hat, you don't change that. Uh, You don't even think about changing that. Now, it may be that they're going to remember it's a blue hat, but you start asking them five times, is it a green hat? You're starting to have these people, even if they're honest, lying awake at night saying, why do they keep asking me about a green hat? They'll start thinking, maybe it was a green and blue striped hat. No, they remember it as a blue hat. Deal with it. Now, there may be another witness who has it's a green hat. You just have to deal with it and show the jury, okay, look, we caught the guy. Here's the evidence against him. Memories fail. This person had the wrong color. We didn't try and change that goes back to your, one of your first questions, is when you're hiring people as prosecutors, you want to make sure that they, they get that, that they have to sort of take it as it is, play fair, and not think they should do more than that. Right, because people try to harmonize all the stories because they're worried that the discrepancy is going to be fatal to their case, but the discrepancy is what it is, as you say. Yeah, you take it as given, and as a boss, you'd be scared to death that people would do something otherwise. And when you're in the outside of the justice system, you fully want to trust that whoever's putting a case on is going to play by those rules because there's no one in that room. How do you deal with difficult judges? Or if a judge didn't like your case, or you know, I've seen this also, you know, their judges are just people and they get chummy with the defense lawyer, or it's a famous defense lawyer who's a big deal in the bar, but the prosecutor is a young person just starting out. There are these... Um, moments in the courtroom where the judge seems to be bending over backwards for the defense lawyer, and maybe that was just my perspective at the time, and I took umbrage at it. How did you think about judges at trial? Oh, boy, they, they were so different. By and large, I thought you got a fair shake from most judges, and I think most judges gave both sides a fair shake. But every once in a while, you'll be in a case where the judge sees it differently and is skeptical. I tried to win the judge over if I could, and you tried your hardest to sort of say, you know, what's bugging the judge? In part, because what's bugging the judge, if it's a weakness in your case, maybe the jurors would see that anyway. So what is it that we're missing? You take it to heart. I mean, it's a federal judge. You respect them. And so it can put doubt in your mind. So the trial's over and the jury comes back with a verdict. Just describe for folks what the feeling is in the courtroom and in the mind of the prosecutor, not the defendant, not the defense lawyer, of the prosecutor when the verdict comes back 
guilty? I remember my first verdict, February 14th, 1988. I won't say the person's name. And she was convicted and she was guilty. And so you think, well, I'm a prosecutor. I'm supposed to convict and I'm not looking to lose. And this person is guilty and the verdict comes back and sinking feeling in your stomach, recognizing this person for a drug offense is going to jail. I remember who the court reporter was and I remember her describing because it was February 14th, what she was doing for Valentine's day. And I'm not looking, but I'm hearing handcuffs going on the defendant who's going to spend Valentine's day in, in the federal lockup. And so it's a very bizarre feeling because you're supposed to try to win and you are trying to win. And on the facts, the person's guilty and now you win. And then you, you have that, just that uncomfortable feeling the way you are at, at a sentencing. Now I will tell you that when the Al Qaeda guys were convicted, I didn't have that uncomfortable feeling that people who blew up hundreds of people were going to be off the streets. There's a heaviness. I remember hearing how people used to talk about it and, and would say, you know, it's not a moment even in success for the prosecution where you feel like high-fiving. You know, as I did the job for a period of time, you realize that anybody who, who feels in that moment celebratory or feels like high-fiving their trial partner probably shouldn't be in the job. Because even though the result is right and just, it's not a moment of celebration. It's a moment of great sadness. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a fair description. Final question. Do you miss being the United States attorney? I miss being the United States attorney for sure. I, I love that job and I love working with people. But I did it for 11 years. And it's a little bit like, well, a lot like you shouldn't do it too long. You try to organize the office with a whole team of others to go things in a certain way. And it needs a breath of fresh air for someone else to come in and sort of say, you know what, that was good. This is better. And so I'm very comfortable that when I left and my successor and his successor, and um, I guess we're four successors uh, out, <laughs> right. uh, have done a great job. And that's healthier for the office. And I'll also tell you, it was a very strange feeling to be a U.S. attorney in, in the age of terror. It was far more draining on me than I had thought. I enjoyed it. I thought i worked as hard as I could while I was doing it. And it was time to have someone else have the chance to do it. And I felt like a lot of stress came off, uh, not to have that weight hanging on me. Um, but I chose when to leave and I realized not everyone does. Right. All good things must come to an end. And that includes this interview. Pat Fitzgerald, thank you so much. Thanks, Preet. Great to talk to you. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something that struck me in the news. And one thing that has made a lot of news this week was this whole imbroglio at the White House with the Super Bowl champions, the Eagles, and whether or not they were going to come to the White House for a celebration. And at the last minute, it turned out not that many Eagles players were going to come. And the president then, in a fit of pique, preemptively disinvited them and decided instead to have some kind of show of patriotism where he said we were going to respect the flag and the national anthem, and had a bunch of people there, none of whom I believe were Eagles fans. And I watched this display, and if you've seen it, you may have also watched the president standing at the podium when a song got played, and it was God Bless America, and the president of the United States didn't know the words to the song. And it made me think about something, which I don't think I've shared publicly before. So on 9-11, September 11th, 2001, my wife and I were living on 22nd Street in Manhattan, 
and we had a daughter who was four months old. And every night we would put her to bed and I would sing her songs. And usually it was, you know, standard fare like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and other songs you might imagine. And on September 12th, when I put my daughter to bed, I added a song to the repertoire. And the song I added was God Bless America. I added others also, but that was the main one. And every night, for as long as I can remember, in addition to whatever other things I sang to my daughter, I sang God Bless America. Because it was a song that, for people who lived in New York, came to be a symbol and an anthem, really, of hope for America and how we might come out of this. And it it meant a lot to me and my family and to so many Americans. They started singing that song after 9-11 at baseball games. And then we had a son, and he got treated to the same nighttime singing by his father. And then we had another son. And I'll tell you, when we were living in Bethesda, Maryland, my second child had a birthday party. He was five years old, and we hired a woman to come and sing songs and play the guitar for the kids who came to my son's birthday party. And they sat around in a circle in our living room, which was unfurnished because we had no money. And she asked my son what his favorite song was. And my son, without stopping to think about it, looks her in the face and says, my favorite song is God Bless America. And she said, that's a first. I'd never heard that before. And maybe it's a silly thing that I felt a certain amount of pride that that's the song my son picked. Now, the reason I'm telling this story is that that song means a lot to me. Some people don't like the song. Some people prefer This Land is Your Land, which is another song that I have sung to my children. That's a great song also. One of the reasons I sang God Bless America is I could actually hit every note, which is not true of a lot of songs that you might sing to your children. Now, I don't really care if you like God Bless America or not, or you can sing it or not, or you prefer This Land is Your Land or not. What makes me angry is this discussion we're having in the country, led often by the president, about what it means to be an American, about what it means to be patriotic, about what it means to be respectful of the flag, about what it means to protest peacefully. And frankly, when I saw the president standing up there, having this, you know, stunt of an event that proclaimed to show to the world and to the country that he was patriotic because he would pay lip service to the national anthem after disinviting players who had legitimate grievances with the divisions being caused by this president. And he stands up there and he doesn't even know the words to the song himself, which is basically an alternate anthem for the United States. It made me angry. I wouldn't otherwise care that anyone, including the president of the United States, doesn't know the words to any particular song, whether it's a patriotic song or not. But if you're going to go about making the case that other Americans don't love America as much as you do because of how they treat a particular song that has been designated the anthem in this country, then you should learn the goddamn words to the song. And you should change your tune. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Patrick Fitzgerald. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media. Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. <laughs>
And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.